Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Yo, this is your boy, G-Ski Rocks. And this is going out to the lovely, lovely women of the world. I know sometimes you have to make a hard decision. But I want you to think about this. This song is going out to the mighty, mighty world of women. And you have to make a decision Is it life, is it death I know you must decide Either way, either choice It is a long ride Raise a child, single mom And will the father be there You had your fun that night But I don't think he cares Bring a life into this world Is a big responsibility Women, can you hear me? Each life is precious, so I ask that you think about it. There are people that can help you, so don't doubt it. It's demanding and you may not have much to give, so hear me out when I say, just let them live. I want you to know that they're precious human life. Just let them live. Taking away their chance, I don't think that it's right. Just let them live. Opportunity to go old Just let them live And what they could have been You'll never ever know All races, all creeds and colors One thing that kids know is how to love each other There are doctors, nurses, and great school teachers Please let them live so I can get a chance to meet her Or him, he's our cop or our paper boy He's that boy next door with all those toys. She's the girl, the next corporate CEO. Or that girl next door, you just gotta know. Either way it go, we're talking about human life. Grant them life because it's just only right. And I'm begging you, cause something's gotta give. So hear me out when I say, just let them live. I want you to know that they're precious. Cause 53 million babies didn't 
Days Radio. It is November 1st, my favorite month of the year, 2013. I like November. Actually, I love it and I hate it now that I'm over 35. That's right. I'm giving it away. Welcome to the show, everybody. I am your host, Letitia Wong, and my co-hosts today are taking the day off, and that's okay because we all need one of those every once in a while. I want to welcome everybody to the single most pro-life show anywhere that you're going to find because we don't just talk about one pro-life issue. We talk about all of them and uphold the pro-life ethic that is in virtually everything that we read in the news. No joke, I am not kidding. These are ethics problems and these are ethics issues that don't get talked about in the mainstream media, definitely not, and oftentimes not in regular media that isn't so crazy and liberal. So you're going to hear this here. You're going to hear this on this show. You're going to hear it from our hosts. Today you're going to hear from me. So today I want to give our scripture that we lead our show with all the time. It guides our ethics on this show. It is from the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, where God says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses, against, to, as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the life that you have given us and help us to remember that you have given us life and life abundantly in your will and in your kingdom. And that abundant life is not necessarily what we define as quality of life. But sometimes I think, Lord, that we have settled in this world for our definition of quality of life over the abundant life that you offer to us. So I pray and I lift up our time here today that you help us to understand the difference between the life that you have to give us and the life that this earth tries to make as the ultimate life, and it is nowhere near the abundant life that you give to us. So thank you for this time. Thank you for this opportunity. Please enlighten our minds. Give us open minds, not narrow ones. Always. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we have had an interesting week watching Obamacare news. Now, this has been kind of amusing on my part because Obamacare has been touted in the past, up until this point, to be the salvation of mankind in America for health insurance and health care. Obamacare rolled out nearly four, well, it's been a month. It's been a month. And it has been nothing but a sore 
on the thumb of America. The website doesn't work. At least it doesn't work well enough to sign up all the people that they wanted to sign up. And like the old mantra, it isn't the crime, it's the cover-up. Which means when I applied this to Obama and Obamacare, it has been now a failure of extreme proportions as far as implementation. And now the crime of the cover-up, the cover-up to say that it's not really that bad is now going on. Obama has been reported by no less than Anderson Cooper to be threatening Obama, uh, Obama the White House. The Obama White House has been threatening reporters and media outlets and insurance insurance companies and anyone from insurance companies not to say anything negative about the huge losses of actual insurance that people had, not to talk about the 95 million people that have lost their policies, not to talk about the fact that he that Obama's prediction or proclamation that if you liked your health care insurance policy, you can keep it. If you liked your doctor, you can keep your doctor, has been a dismal, dismal opposite reaction. Off, totally opposite. I mean, here we are down on our theme that I've been pounding for our weeks, not as advertised. So Obamacare is now rolling down the hill not as advertised, and we are now finding it out. So on Obamacare, specifically on Obama, President Obama and Obamacare, put those two together, I have oh, I have a new theme song, and you're going to love it. It's not, it's not an oldie. I mean, it's not a new song. It's an oldie because I think socialized medicine is an old thing. It was tried before. It has been a miserable experience for most people who have had to live under socialized medicine. But yet, Mr. President, you still want it that way.
<laughs> that is the theme song for Obamacare. I am sorry that I had to pick something out like that, but it has not been any more fitting than any other song in this world. That is Obama on Obamacare. It is a big mistake. It is a big, huge heartache, but he wants it that way. Oh, yes. Let's not have any illusions about how this is coming down. It has been planned from the beginning. Can anybody say Cloward and Piven? Don't know those names. It's about time you found out. All right. I was not going to spend a lot of time talking about Obamacare again today. I think we have treaded over that ground quite well. I just wanted to point out that I have a new theme song for it and uh, that the wheels are just coming off one at a time in rapid fashion right now. So but the next story that I want to talk about at length, and this is going to take a while, is because it's a long story. This is on ran across my page this this afternoon and I had to talk about it because it is from msnbc.com and it is a pro abortion story. Well, let's let's just well, yeah, okay. People want to take an issue with me the way I said it. Let me talk about it this way. The story is that about an Oklahoma couple who aborts one of their children with disabilities in spite of the strictest pro-life laws that Oklahoma has in any state. The couple had to end up driving to uh, Texas, news on Texas more later, in order to obtain a later-term abortion. MSNBC writes this as a sob story about how this couple's abortion experience would have been more pleasant if abortion were just a little more convenient for them. Well, hang on to your saggy pants, folks, because this is going to be a ride. Not only does, does the story treat the woman, young cancer patient under Obamacare, it takes a trip through the land of politics, albeit totally expected, coming from the uber-liberal media. So first, let's talk about the couple involved. This, uh, this, this article reads like a pinball machine, and I'll tell you how that means. First, uh, let me read the part of this, and then I'll tell you how that says. It says, it's, it, the title, oh my gosh, the title of this article says, I'm showing my son mercy. It's a quote from the mother, the wife, the wife and mother of the story who had the abortion. I'm showing my son mercy. And by this, they are implying that abortion was a mercy killing. You know, we have, we have uh, words for that. It's euthanasia, what, like people like to talk, talk about, uh, that abortion now is some sort of legal euthanasia. Well, I don't, I don't object to that language, except that uh, euthanasia has its own negative connotations. And which we won't talk about today, but this woman did not do herself any favors by couching abortion in in this language. So it says that this couple drove to Dallas, ate ramen noodles and microwave popcorn, had their three kids in a rented car, didn't have enough money in for a hotel room for the entire three-day procedure, and so she spent the wife spent the last night in the 
having her abortion in a rental rental car. Uh, okay. She says, "I cried until I, I until I could fall asleep." Well, why is she crying? Okay, this that, hang on to that because we're going to talk about their their process, how to get to this point from where they were. Apparently, they have three kids already. They're unemployed. They live on a $700 a month disability stipend from the government and food stamps. Well, she qualifies for Obamacare, totally, and Medicaid, but, you know. They could not obtain, they live in Oklahoma, they could not obtain a later-term abortion when they found out that their child that they were carrying had some kind of fetal anomaly. And she says, I could go on and let my, I, I could let my son go on and suffer or she, should, or she could get an abortion, which she rationalized was doing the best thing for my baby. Apparently the child was going to have, uh, was not expected to survive to birth. Or if he did, the doctors told him that he would not reach his first birthday. He would never walk or lift his head or have a normal, normally developed life. Hmm. We have a guest later on that will talk about the prospects of children in the womb and those type of things that doctors say about children who are not developing properly and the issue of abortion. Okay, but skipping on, this is the part where the story becomes a little political. Of course they were going to make this a political story. The state of Oklahoma's uh, state legislatures, both houses, are for majorities. They have a Republican governor. They have passed more pro-life laws in the state of Oklahoma than any other state in the union in the last few years. And so abortion has been uh, extremely restrictive, which is to say that if you are wanting a late-term abortion past 20 weeks, you can't get one legally in the state of Oklahoma. And supposedly that is a bad thing. Because now the article goes on and lists several people and interviews several people to talk about how awful abortion restrictions are. They go into another sob story about how a representative, state representative, what's his name, Steve Martin, not kidding, that's his name, talked about his abortion experience with his girlfriend 40 years ago, right before Roe v. Wade was was, uh, decided. Sorry, not passed, decided. Another sob story. And then he talked about another, and then this this article talks about another representative. Now this time for U.S. Congress, Doug Cox. He's a physician, but he's a pro-abortion physician. He complains about how Oklahoma's laws are disagreeable to him. And he talks about it saying all of the new Oklahoma laws that aimed at limiting abortion and contraception are great for the Republican family that lives in a gingerbread house with a two-car garage, two planned kids, and a dog. In the real world, they are less than perfect, he wrote. 
Um, okay, let's deal with this right now because I am very, very tired of people who are pro-abortion running the narrative. First of all, it is not great. Abortion laws were not designed for the Republican family that lives in a gingerbread house, the two-car garage, two planned kids, and a dog. Seriously, I do not understand how politicians who are arguing in support of abortion laws, pro-abortion laws, can mischaracterize the sum total of the American uh, household in, in this way. Just as many people who are not Republicans don't favor abortion laws that are Republicans. And abortion laws are not designed for Republican families. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It is, abortion laws are designed to limit the killing, death, to limit the availability of doctors to abortionists, shouldn't say doctors, abortionists have medical degrees, but abortionists to profit from the killing of the unborn. By shifting the frame of reference to abortion laws are for a certain type of person, or pro-life laws, I should say, are for a certain type of person. They're choosing to frame the issue and misrepresent it. Nobody lives in a gingerbread house. Couldn't anyway on a practical level. But I assume he means like the white picket fence. That is uh, kind of the illusion of the American dream. Two-car garage, two planned kids. When in the world does having a house and a two-car garage and two planned kids ever should figure into a decision to kill another member of the family. It is totally irrelevant. It is logically inconsistent and a complete red herring. This is a total distraction. There is no way on earth this this makes any logical sense. Let's go back to my pinball analogy. So, number one, the couple has three kids already. Ding! All right. Have we ever talked about the zero relationship between the number of kids who exist in a family versus the number of kids a couple can murder in their family? Well, in case we haven't, let me make this crystal clear today. There is no relationship between how many kids a couple has and the right to end the life of one on the way. The tragedy of a life brutally dismembered does not decrease with the number of children that survived a woman's right to do whatever she wants. Ah, but the pro-abortion argument isn't about number then, even though it says so right in the claim. It really isn't about that. Again, not as advertised. Number two, they are poor and unemployed. Ding! It's about finances, resources, time, and energy. This is their argument. The pro-abortion voices are saying that people are too stupid to do what it takes 
find the resources they need, and exhibit the character required to raise one more child, no matter what the circumstances. That's a pretty dim view of human potential, which is ironically and contradictory the potential abortion advocates say women can only have if abortion were illegal. It's pathetic and insulting to anyone who works to triumph over life's challenges to be told that it's not enough unless abortion is legal. Really? Hard work is not enough? Trying is not enough? Getting help? Finding ways? finding solutions, actually engaging in the work it takes to make a solution come to pass is not enough. You need a a legislator. You need a body of legislators to pass a law saying it's okay to kill one's own child in order to make your dreams come true. Wow. Listen, I personally know families with more than five children each and they have very modest incomes, and they're making it. They do get help. They have help from family. They have help from friends. They have help from church members, church family. They have any type of help that they can to do what they need, and they don't complain that any of their children are disposable at any point in their lives, developmentally, physically, emotionally, in the womb or out of the womb. You don't sacrifice a child's life for money. Call her last week or the week before, I think, that argued for that. Life would have just been much better. Life is much better. I want to make money. I would do this. I can do that because I aborted my child earlier on. Well, who's to say you wouldn't have all that? Who's to say you can't predict the future? You can't. In fact, there are just as many stories of men and women because they had a child on the way or because they had a child already that they needed to to provide for, found a way to succeed financially, materially, educationally, you name it, for the sake of their children, for the sake of the child that they didn't think that they could provide for before. There is something about needing to help and raise a child that brings out the best in human beings. And it is a choice to either be the best or jump in a deep, dark character hole and be a real jerk and say, I can't li- somebody has to die in order for me to live my life the way I want. You find a way. Truth be told, that $180,000 per child per child figure that gets put out there, you know, the supposed cost of raising one child, it presupposes such a narrow and unrealistic set of circumstances. It's absurd. In real life, raising a child to age 18 does not 
does not cost that staggering amount. And I don't think it's so staggering once you figure out that most people spend their money on frivolous things. It's not, it does not cost that much. If you're a family and not a bunch of consumers, we start to start looking at our children as not as consumers of ourselves and ourselves as consumers of the commercial world. We have to start looking at ourselves as related family members who help each other. I love um, what E. Calvin and Beisner had said a few weeks ago on this show, and he was quoting somebody that he learned from, and he quoted that, and I can't, I'll paraphrase this because I can't quote it, and it's, it just knocked my socks off how good it was, and I'm going to repeat it. He says, every human being that's born, I mean, doesn't bring into the world just a mouth to feed. They also bring two hands, two feet, and a brain. And the human potential, in the, living in the mind of a human being, is so much greater than this lowbrow talk about another mouth to feed. I mean, how much more can you miss the boat? Okay, getting back to our story. I mean, I could, I could, I could go all the way and go in different directions, but I'm going to bring it back to the story. So three politicians later, talking about how Oklahoma's pro-life laws are so incredibly restrictive to cause a couple so much so much uh financial distress because they wanted an abortion (laughs) oh my goodness and so doug cox representative doug cox goes on to say he's u.s congressman goes on to say like it or not abortion has always been available to people whether it's legal or not As a physician, I don't want to go back to seeing women coming in with a perforated uterus or a coat hanger or somebody doing an abortion who doesn't know how to do it. I'm sorry, Doug Cox isn't listening to the right news stories. He's not reading the right news articles because today, I'm sorry, not today, two days ago, There was yet another medical emergency requiring an ambulance to come to the last abortion-providing clinic, Planned Parenthood clinic in Missouri. This is what? The fourth or fifth? No, more than that. I think it's close. I, I don't have the figure in my mind, but I think it's close to six to eight in 2013 alone. Whoever they hired in that Planned Parenthood since last year, 2012, is monumentally incompetent because women have been being sent to the hospital in ambulances so many times in the last 12 months. Just about once a month, if not more. Now, if you take this standard of care, women going to the hospital in an ambulance having to be taken out on a stretcher with the EMT, 
at your local doctor's office, at your doctor's office, and your doctor's office, we are going to look at it this way. Your doctor has to send people to the hospital every few weeks in an ambulance because of something he or she did. Would you go back to that doctor? Would you call into question the care and competence of that doctor? Of course you would. But somehow when it comes to an abortion clinic, the other way. city of St. Louis is looking the other way and will not give up the information that it is legally required to give up under the Freedom of Information Act so that women who are being harmed by, by Planned Parenthood can find the justice they deserve. And that's the protection that abortion has in this country. So I don't want Doug Cox to be speaking about abortion when, as a physician, he should know better. He probably does know better. And he's spinning a narrative that, again, is false. He says he doesn't want to go back to seeing women coming in with perforated uteruses and coat hangers. He doesn't want somebody doing an abortion who doesn't know how to do it. We've got that happening right here, right now, today, and at legal abortion facilities all over the country. What? After Roe v. Wade, women stopped having perforated uteruses? I don't think so. After Roe v. Wade, women didn't keep using coat hangers? I don't think so. After Roe v. Wade, abortionists suddenly knew what they knew how to do abortions? I don't think so. In fact, after Roe v. Wade, more women than ever have been subjects of experimentation to perform abortions in more harmful and seriously wicked ways. In effect, Roe v. Wade allowed women to become experiments on how to kill human beings in the womb. Legally. So these three politicians have been talking about how it's so hard for women to get an abortion and they trot out and they support this sob story of this husband and wife who had to scrap together $3,500 to get an abortion. They couldn't even pay all of their bills. They had to sell scrap metal to be able to pay just one of their bills. But they found... $3,500 to get an abortion. Let me tell you something. That $3,500 probably could have paid their bills and food on the table for six months or more. And the couple could have found help for their child if the child could be helped. And here's what I don't understand about the argument that children can be legally aborted or should be legally aborted if they have some kind of fetal anomaly, some kind of hereditary disorder, something developmentally wrong, where the doctor says your child is not going to live until birth or your child is not going to live close to You know, there's a big, huge difference. Your child is not going to live until birth. Or your child can live after birth 
<laughs> but not for very long. Your child is either going to die in the womb or your child is going to live. I'm sorry, was there a third option? I I missed somewhere there. So I don't really see how even in that situation abortion can be introduced as a viable option. Did this woman need to get an abortion if her child was going to die already from natural causes? Why not allow your child to die of natural causes and spend your time ending the suffering of your child through other means. For instance, anesthetic seems a lot more, a lot less invasive than an abortion procedure that tore the child limb from limb. Now, if you want to talk about suffering, what kind of child doesn't suffer through an abortion? This woman wanted to say she didn't want her child to suffer. She did not want her unborn child to suffer. So she made him suffer through an abortion procedure that ended his life. This is not logical, folks. This is not logical in the least. So I'm going to take a quick break. I know our guest is on the line. She is um, a woman that I had met Oh, probably last year, and has a fantastic story, totally, totally related to what we're talking about. But we're going to take a break so that I can get a drink and cough off air. (laughs) And uh, we'll return back to her story. So hang in there while I find, let's see, let's hang in there while I find the right clips. You know, like this. Oh, you're going to like this a lot. There we go. That. 
And we are back. Welcome to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. I am your host, Letitia Wong. And on, with air, on the air with me today is just this wonderful woman who wrote a very interesting book. Now, I met her at a 40 Days for Life event. I think it was uh, the kickoff to one of the 40 Days for Life. I think it was the winter one. Um, either the winter one or the – yes, I think that was right – and she had written a book about, and I didn't know her beforehand, but she had written a book about her son who was born with trisomy 18. Now, if those of you who understand what trisomy 18 is, um, it is almost a near, it is almost always a fatal condition uh, where a child is, is, has an extra chromosome um, a deep, uh, somewhere. I think it's on the 18th chromosome. <laughs> and is because of because of the abnormality normally does not survive uh long after birth and like a lot of my a, a lot of the women that we've had on our program who have talked about different conditions their children have either lived or not lived through the medical community frowns terribly on women who decide to bring their children to the point of birth and give birth to a child with a condition or a disability or what have you. Now, we're going to talk about exactly how often this happens, what it's like for women to go through this, uh, this, this nine-month process or this however long it took for um, their pregnancy to come to this point where they're having discussions with people about possibly terminating their abortion, their, their children, and afterward. So on with me um, is the woman that I met. Her name is Cheryl Crozier. And Cheryl, welcome to the program. Welcome to Pro-Life Fridays Radio. Thank you. Can you hear me all right, Leticia? I can hear you. Yes, I can hear you. Perfect. Okay. I, yeah, welcome, I am, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm honored and humbled to be on. Well, thank you. Um, so when I, when I met you, um, you had, you had a, a book that you had written about your son. So tell us uh, the story behind this book and how you've kind of come to this point from, I guess, the point where you, you became pregnant with your son and this whole, um, this whole journey, I guess you could say, uh, of, of Simon's life. Sure. Sure. I can, I can, uh, I'll, I'll start really from the beginning, but as far as his book goes, um, that's right. I met you at the it was a kickoff meeting for Coalition for Life, and uh, at that point, um, it was very close to being published um, in the print version. I think we just had the ebook version um, that came out first, and then the print version shortly followed. But it was through friends, a friend's support and prayer, the Lord's guidance, and then um, Simon's own gentle prodding um, that I was actually inspired to write his book and. And, uh, you know, now this going out and, and telling Simon's story and, and really uh, advocating 
for our children with the rare trisomies, um, in particular trisomy 18, has definitely become my my ministry. Um, and uh, you know, it's I've I've always said I was proudly pro-life. However, um, I don't think I really knew what it was until Simon, um, until that pregnancy with Simon, um, during Simon's time here on earth and then afterwards. Uh, you know, a lot of people say that they're pro-life, but are they just for life for themselves or for their family's life? And um, I, I remember there were many of times um, that this one woman in particular at uh, at our church, she kept asking me to go in front of Planned Parenthood and it never failed. The time she was asking me to go, I was in the middle of miscarrying so many times because before Simon, um, we lost six children to miscarriage, and I, I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't do it. And so um, I have to say that the first time I actually got out there um, was was after we lost Simon. And, and I really understand, um, you know, now what it is to be pro-life and and just from those people that I meet, I mean, you talk about hearts. It's not just for life for them and for their family's life. I mean, it's for everyone. And it is just, it's just so beautiful um, to see. to see. But if you'd like, I can uh, go ahead and just give you a little bit of background, um, you know, what had happened. And Leticia, feel free at any time to ask me questions if that's okay. Sure, go right ahead. Okay. So uh, as, as, I, as I mentioned um, about Simon inspiring me, I, I am Simon's voice now, um, but I also am the voice of our most vulnerable children. And uh, my message is very clear that the lives of children, regardless of the diagnosis or syndrome, possess inherent dignity and value, and they do deserve the best care. Um, but I'd like to share a little bit about uh, Simon's story and uh, definitely to increase awareness of our most vulnerable children who are labeled. And it's very clear to me that Simon's treatment would have been much different if they knew he had trisomy 18 before birth. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one, um, one of the quotes um, within his book was written by uh, Dr. Steve Cantrell, um, who had a, a, a child named Ryan with trisome 18, and he quotes, our kids are not disposable and deserve every consideration. The souls and spiritual essence of our children are not disabled. Their physical mm-hmm. handicaps exist, but their desire to thrive is not diminished. And it is just so true. You know, if only we would have known him when our Simon was alive. But uh, if you let me start a few years before um, Simon inspired me to begin writing his book, my Husband Scott and I were married January 12, 2002. Our first child, Samuel, was born January 4, 2003. And then our second child, Sean, was born October 2, 2004. After that, my husband and I had lost six children to miscarriage. And so after our daughter Faith, um, we lost our daughter Faith in September 2008, we decided to rid our home of most baby items. It was early oh, 2010 that we learned we were expecting. So as you can imagine, Scott and I, along with our sons, Samuel, age 7 at the time, and Sean, age 5, we were filled with joy, but yet we were just terrified. 
of losing another baby. And, you know, after losing six children to miscarriage, we we decided, we refused. Um, at that time, they just had the amniocentesis. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we said, no, we, you know, we're, we want our child no matter what. And um, it was the 20-week ultrasound that our son Simon had the markers for trisomy 18, uh, otherwise mm-hmm. known as syndrome. I'd like to just, uh, you know, because you briefly mentioned about trisomy 18, I'm just going to put it in a nutshell to to make it pretty simple. Everyone has heard of Down syndrome. Down syndrome Mm -hmm. is trisomy 21. Well, 18 is the second most common. And so trisomy 21, Down syndrome, falls on the um, 21st chromosome, whereas trisomy 18, otherwise known as Edwards syndrome, falls on the 18th chromosome. All it means is try three. They have three chromosomes instead of two. And so uh, our kids are, you know, they can be very very similar to the Down syndrome children. They do have some medical complications, heart defects and that type of thing. But uh, then there's other types of trisomy. I mean, there can be a trisomy 9 and a trisomy 13. Of course, they just fall uh, different different areas. But 95% of our children um, do pass in utero. Um, which is so disheartening. Um, But one in 6,000 are born in our lives. So if, I hate to say it this way, but if the medical professionals aren't looking at um, trying to push you towards that termination during the pregnancy, uh, you know, it, it, it doesn't end once your child's born. Um, and then mm-hmm. you get into a whole other thing of uh, withdrawing care and withholding care um, is what right. we went through. But, you see, Simon had this cleft lip that was noticeable on the ultrasounds. And since they couldn't label him with T18, as they suspected, they kept focusing on the cleft lip and the clenched hands. And to them, they see a sign of a genetic abnormality. So I was monitored very closely throughout the pregnancy. However, I didn't know if it was because they were trying to put a label on our baby or if it was just routine. You know, we were talked to a couple of times about termination, as we all know. In other words, that's abortion. And, um, you know, we we were even told, hey, you know, the majority uh, of parents terminate their babies when they have this condition and your son is showing signs of it and uh, we said no we're not going to do any kind of prenatal testing Um, you know we will you know whatever the Lord gives us we have a strong faith and we're just going to leave it in his hands I'll never forget we were cornered in the doorway by the sonographer and the ultrasound doctor informing us that some parents terminate just for a cleft lip so since we didn't get the label on our son during the pregnancy. We were encouraged to terminate even for his cleft lip. But, you know, we made it clear that um, no matter what syndrome they, he had. Did they ever tell you you ought to terminate? Or was this uh, more of the an implied? Something they, they, they really implied kind of were looking at us like we were crazy, like why would you even want to go any further with this pregnancy? Um so when they said those words, because, again, they couldn't say that he had trisomy 18. Yes, they saw right. markers, and markers are, you know, the cleft lip, which sure. is interesting because it's typically the trisomy 13 children that have cleft lips. But our Simon had 
had it, and he had trisomy 18, um, and then the, mm-hmm. the clenched fist. Um, so, you know, when we refused, you know, the, um, the amniocentesis, they just kept on pushing on and, like I said, even cornered us in the doorway um, to inform us, I guess, so to speak, um, that, you know, parents do terminate for cleft lips. And, you know, it was at that point where I, my husband and I were like, you know, we are proudly pro-life and, you know, we're, we're not going to terminate no matter what syndrome our son may have. You know, we're going to love our child, cleft lip and all. Um, and so that was the pregnancy. And I, I, it, it, you know, I'll be honest, it was, it was so difficult because every, at, at every moment, you know, we were under such a microscope and, um, you know, and picking on him. And, and, you know, like I said, I didn't know if it was because they were trying to put a label or if it was because it was just routine or if it was because I had so many miscarriages. I don't know, but it, they robbed us of the joy during the pregnancy and the anxiety. And it it just, I mean, you talk about not really being able to sleep and not, you know, and, and, you know, even just walking just out the door. And I, you know, I, I run into people who, you know, were expecting themselves and people I knew, some people I didn't know. And Mm -hmm. just so blissful. And I am scared to death. And but yet, you know, we we know. I mean, we knew that it was God and the Holy Spirit that was saying, "No, you don't need this test." And there was a reason that we didn't get the test um, because uh, we wouldn't have. And, and that's a whole other issue. Um, they wouldn't have because I went, I've gone through his medical records. Um, so I, they, they wouldn't have done a C-section on me, and Simon did have heart conditions. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, what's very sad is that um, later I discovered in my medical records, you know, when you were talking about uh, fetal anomalies and um, all mm-hmm. that, and uh, in my medical records, my OBGYN basically decided to do what he wanted to anyway, and it said induction for fetal anomalies. So even though we refused any prenatal testing, this OBGYN basically had his mind made up about our son. And it was Ah. heart-wrenching. Now, my blood pressure was up, so I did have the maternal gestational hypertension, as they called it. Um, Mm -hmm. But to see that in there along with it, um, so they were looking for preeclampsia with me is what they, they had said, because I did have preeclampsia mm-hmm. with both of my children, Samuel and Sean. Um, and, you know, I was induced, so I never had a C-section before. However, um, with Simon, we made it very clear because they had suspected heart issues as well. So not just his clenched hands and the cleft lip, but he did. Um, you know, they were seeing some signs of him just having a VSD, um, and which is a ventricular septal defect. But, but yet, it wasn't you know anything to get be alarmed with. You know, they said no worries. You know, we'll just do an echo when he gets out. Um, but we, um, so what had happened is, like I said, um, you know, we we continued to just refuse any kind of testing and. And uh, so went in um, the day that, to be induced. Ironically, it was Labor Day. It was September 6, 2010. And mm-hmm. 
that we went in to be induced. And, you know, you talk about God at work. Um, I'll never forget, um, you know, because we were scheduled to be at the hospital at 8.30 on Labor Day. I'll never forget. You know, we went out for dinner. And um, I had prayed throughout the whole pregnancy. Like I said, I was just so um, anxious and so afraid. And so I wanted this baby so much because we prayed and prayed, you know what, Lord, and get me pregnant at this point. We've already lost this six children. Don't get me pregnant unless I'm able to hold this child in my arms. And um, one of the things I prayed for was, you know what, Lord, I'd really like to see a child, an infant, an infant with a cleft mm-hmm. lip. I don't see any. You know, you see them in the, you know, on advertisements and, and in third world countries, but you just, you just don't see them out and about, an infant. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. you see the repaired ones, you know, when the child's older. But mm-hmm. sure enough, that day, that evening, we were out for pizza right before we were going into the hospital. And I remember Scott and the, the boys started to walk out, and I said, oh, my goodness. I said, Scott, I'll be right there. I approached this family. They were having dinner. Their little boy was six months old. He had a cleft lip. And they said, yeah, we're waiting because he's got a heart condition. And, and so I thought, oh, you talk about a relief. I'm like, wow, they can make it. Simon can just have a cleft lip and maybe not trisomy 18. And right. so, um, you know, I mean, there, there were various, um, various, uh, <laughs> various things that, that, that I know that, that God um, was with us. But yet, you know, we're human, and, and it's, it's hard not to get to be afraid and and so on september 7th um 2010 at 5:40 p.m we heard um the cry of simon dominic crozier as he entered this world he was four pounds three ounces and 17 inches long uh yes he was small he had the bilateral cleft lip but he was absolutely perfect um, wow. You know, we were filled with joy, but of course we were scared. And so the neonatologist examines him. He said he looks good. He's breathing on his own. And then they transferred Simon to another room. And because I had a C-section, which ultimately saved his life because of his heart condition right. that we found out later, um, my husband, Scott, um, he was told to wait outside the room of the NICU. And the doctor comes out, and here we go again. You know, there's concerns. So, you know, you go through the whole pregnancy, oh, all this. And now Scott, all he could say was, I know, but we have hope. Um, you know, it was interesting because, again, he still didn't have the label. So they're looking at him thinking, hmm, there could be a genetic anomaly here, but they weren't completely sure um, because they never did the blood work on him um, until um, the second day. And so... Um, they started prostaglandins, um, a heart medicine. Um, our Simon had heart defects that we found out after he was two two days old. And we were told that this medicine is crucial. It's his lifeline. And then on day three, um, he was officially diagnosed with trisomy 18, Edwards syndrome. Okay. okay. And so you had endured the you know toward the latter part of your pregnancy all this pressure to abort him yeah. and then you know afterward did the pressure ever let up 
Like now that no. he has been born, he's your responsibility. No. Tell, no. tell us about that. Continues. And, you know, um, kind of how I said in the beginning of beginning of your show here, um, when I got on, you know, it it you know here I thought I was pro you know like I said I thought oh I was pro life and this and that you know before Simon and um, mm-hmm. it really makes me realize you know what it is more than just those people walking into parenthood you know it is not just these unwanted pregnancies there's more right. to it and here if you're fighting for your child and the doctor leads you down this path of, oh, your child, you know, if, you know, they're incompatible with life. Oh, there's fetal anomalies. Mm -hmm. Why would you want a child Mm -hmm. with problems? It's after they're born and then they're looking at them and they're not the perfect baby as our society, you know, wants. Then they will lead you down another path. And my husband said so many times, we are not here to expedite his demise. So here's Simon living Okay, so you go through the pregnancy, here he is, and he's living. And here they start him on this prostaglandins for the heart, you know, before anything. And um, then this diagnosis comes back. And I'll never forget, the neonatologist walked in the room on Simon's third day of life. And my husband and I were just sitting in his room, hanging out with Simon, and just, you know, oh, just so grateful that he made it here. And she said, we got the results. She said, Simon has full trisomy 18. She looks at mm-hmm. us and says, I am sorry, and walks out of the room. And we're like, nothing further? Nothing goodness. further. The nurse comes in, and then, oh, my goodness, I mean, she sees our heartache and heartbreak and, and, and everything, and then another doctor comes in. Do you have any questions? Well, guess what? You know, this is what trisomy 18 is, and, and um, you know, it's fatal and this and that, which, you know, it, it doesn't sound good, um, the statistics. However, um, there's in, in Simon's book I had interviewed Dr. Steve Braddock, who is the medical director of genetics and pediatrics, at Cardinal Glennon um, here in St. Louis, and he said mm-hmm. he teaches new physicians. Our kids with chromosomal conditions have not read the statistics, so don't always go by the statistics. These kids can right. survive. I mean, now right. I know, I know, I know many. I know hundreds of them, you know, and they're you know they're going into their teens. Some of them, some are twenty, some are thirty. I know a thirty-two-year-old who has full trisomy 18 and but we were never told about these things we were just given the okay so your son has this diagnosis and here's the deal he is incompatible with life and we're looking at them we're like wait a minute he's living what do you mean and they have then they use another term failure to thrive we're like hmm Hmm. and so they also basically you know let us know that um these children will be severely handicapped and, you know, in a sense, look at you have two healthy boys. This is a burden for you. And right, we're just like, right. no, Simon is our son. We will do for Simon just like we would do for our children. We want the best for him. He's here. We don't care if he has mental retardation. We don't, you know, mm-hmm. this is this is our son. I mean, we're, we're in love with him. This is him, you know. And um, and then so, I mean, that was a whole nother 
um, <clears throat> battle. But, you know, it was interesting because the cardiologist, he suggested heart surgery um, and uh, told us that, you know, fortunately um, there are surgeons um, right here at Cardinal Glennon in St. Louis, and so we had planned to be transferred down there, um, which unfortunately we never made it to. But um, he, uh, you know, but then the neonatologist discouraged us. In fact, they said, do you really want to do that to him? And then so we're getting, again, all confused. You know, then they make the statements, oh, do you want to do two assignments or four assignments? Almost that guilt. Again, here, do you see it leading right. the medical team, right. leading you down a path that you may not want to go? Sure. Just like those women who did get the prenatal diagnosis of a trisomy 18 and then aborted, and then they find out later that they live. So here he is, right. and any kind of a decision we were going to make, they're going to basically almost make us feel bad that, you know, that we would even consider doing anything. But yet right. they wouldn't give us any information on those that are surviving, those that are living. And so, you know, now that he's labeled, his care, his treatment changed dramatically. Um, you know, we were hearing, just because of this extra chromosome, we're hearing, oh, not for Simon. But yet we wanted him wow. to live. And we wanted him wow. to live. And we wanted him to have every opportunity to live. And you know, um, we of course we wanted his time here to be valuable, no matter how long or how short. But you know what? Gosh, <laughs> gosh, he he made it here, and 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 maybe that was a struggle for him, but he did, and he 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 was a fighter. And you know, when you hear these words that your child is incompatible with for life, mm-hmm. incompatible with life, how dehumanizing, how harsh to hear that. What they're saying is not for your child. You know, I and had... At the time, well, at the time, your child was living. He was alive, and he was, uh, you know, if, for medical care required, he would, he, he would live. And they wanted to say that they, would, they wanted to remove medical care to, so that he would die faster. And exactly. I'm not exactly sure... How that is, let's talk about compatibility, how that is compatible with the medical profession. That do not harm? Yes. Right. Well, not just do not harm, the medical profession is established to heal people. I know. (laughs) And to Uh, give people the gift of life, if at all possible, not to remove it from those that are not considered worthy of it. Well, and we were very clear. I mean, obviously, he was not our unwanted pregnancy. And then, you know, finding out there were problems on the ultrasound, it didn't matter. You know, we still continued on, and we're like, no, this is our little boy. And, you know, he was formed, you know, um, and, you know, we clung to that. Um, you know, what is it, Psalm 139, um, that, you know, the Lord knit them together in, in, you know, my mother's womb. And, and we held on to that. And, you know, he was, he was created. But to us it seemed like these medical professionals were always planning for his death and not life. And I want to I share with you um, Nurse Mary. Um, I mention her in the book, one of our absolutely 
favorite nurses. Um, okay. there, there were, I yeah. like to say, um, some of our special doctors, obviously I'd mentioned the cardiologist. He definitely was one of our special doctors. Um, but, um, some of the neonatologists were not, um, but the nurses that we had the special nurses and the not so special nurses. I mean, some of them were just right. like, oh, just let them go to heaven now. <laughs> and, and seriously, we were, we were told that by a few, but, but nurse Mary was one of our special nurses and she quotes in Simon's <clears throat> uh, book, the atmosphere with some of my colleagues walking into Simon's room was like walking into a funeral, like his death had already happened. But the child's eyes opened, and I looked into his eyes, and I told myself, Simon doesn't need this atmosphere. Give him what he deserves. He was like Prince Charming to me. I connected with Simon through my heart and not as a medical case. He drew me to him with silent eyes. So you can see um, the attachment there, um, you know, with with the, the, the some of the nurses. And... Um, you know, again, you know, these nurses were going to bat um, for him, but, uh, you know, it, it, it was very difficult. Um, they weren't on the same page as some of the physicians. And, and so, you know, after he was diagnosed, they weren't even feeding him my breast milk or formula. Wow. I'm, pump, I'm pumping breast milk, and they weren't using it. You see what I'm saying? I'm having... They were going to do what they wanted to do. Even though my husband's saying we're not here to expedite demise, and I'm saying we want Simon's special needs and all. And I finally, I said, wait a minute. Something seems odd. Here I'm pumping this breast milk, and they're not using it. And I know, again, that was, you know, that was the Lord and, and, and intervening there. And, and um, instead what they were doing is giving him drops. This, this is such a hard part for me, but drops of... Um, sugar water called sucrose when he fussed. Right. And looking back, our little boy was hungry. And then Nurse Lola came in, and she's another special nurse. She went to bat for us. And I said, can't we put some of this in a syringe? Can't we feed him? Why am I, why are we putting all this breast milk in the freezer? And um, she got, uh, she got the approval from the doctor. And she, um, She then, um, they started giving Simon my breast milk um, via a nasogastric tube, you know, in the nose. And, right. And um, we were able to also put some in the syringe. Um, and even Samuel and Sean, they felt like he, they were feeding him because we'd just give him drops. And he, oh, my God, he loved the taste. And, you know, this is the worst. You know, we were so shocked that they even shared this with us. But Wow. It was I, I would have. Wow, I would have probably, as a mom myself who had a child in the in the NICU, I would have probably exploded all over the place. Uh, well, you know how I told you about what how they are said, you doing? I know to my child. Well, again, now we are still kind of trusting, thinking, oh, okay, well, maybe it's because you know they had him on some TPN in the beginning, but then I saw these little sucrose drops. I'm like, what the heck? And I'm thinking, when are they going to? feed him, you know, the breast milk. So at the time, I'm not putting two and two together. But again, it was just through prayer. And it was it was the Lord saying, ask if you can put these this breast milk in the syringe, instead of the Mm -hmm. sucre. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I I, at the time, I didn't know. I wasn't looking at it. Go, you're not feeding my son. But 
here's what then I found out. And after that, another nurse told us that some parents don't feed their babies. So as if that's the route we were supposed to go. And I was just shocked she shared that. But she was almost giving us a little nugget like, here you go. I'm so glad you said to have it put in the syringe. And she was so grateful that nurse, this was Nurse Beth who had told us this, that so grateful that Nurse Lola had um, gotten the permission. But, um, you that know, is, eventually so, I was so able to nurse. That is outrageous by itself. I mean, do you need permission to feed your own baby? You need permission to give you know, breast milk to your own child? Why do you need permission for that? I, I mean, that to me sticks out right there saying, you know, I think we have things backwards. Well, that, and then what they had child? said was um, I was able to um, to nurse and bottle feed very small amounts, but they, again, you know, I almost go back to that pregnancy, that anxiety and just the worry and just being so frightened almost made you mm-hmm. scared because it's like, okay, you don't want to give them too much because, you know, and they'd have OT um, and speech come in and monitor, which I was grateful for, you know, I mean, just to make sure he that he wasn't working too hard because he did have heart defects. And um, mm-hmm. so, but they they almost, you know, it was almost like you, you almost had to become fearful because, he has very little reserves, you know, and you don't want him using all his energy and this and that. But but I did. I continued to nurse and bottle feed little bits, um, but I do. I thank God. Um, looking back now, I know. I mean, these were special nurses that suggested, you know, nursing, having, um, you know, the bottle. Let's have OT come in. But here's the thing. Simon was living despite the warnings of the doctors who didn't even think he'd make it past the first week. That, quite honestly, they didn't right. want him to. I mean, I, I, I really don't of, think so. Right. I think they from, were just from get him out of here. Said. That's right. That's right. And, um, I mean, you go through the whole thing with this OBGYN who, oh, my gosh, I mean, that was horrible, too, because during the pregnancy, he's like, Cheryl, what do you want, me, what do you want to hear? There's problems. You need to start planning a funeral if he'd have trisomy 18. Why don't you want to have an amniocentesis? I said, um, you know, because of the, you know, chance of a miscarriage. And and uh, and I said, no, we refuse. Well, then he got nasty with me, and he said, you don't have to say refused. You can say deny. I mean, as if, but then here we go into a whole nother thing, and it's a whole nother battle, you know, um, hmm. of trying to, deal with this you know uh, there was a book that i read during pregnancy i'm sure you've heard of it it's called the help by katherine stockett and you know it was um you know at the time i had no way i was trying to get my mind off the pregnancy and worrying about what was wrong with simon and so i picked up this huge novel and you know um at the time i didn't you know i had no way of knowing um how much this tale of African-Americans' lonely battle against prejudice and misguided conventional wisdom would really have corollaries to my own family struggles. And so mm-hmm. here you go through the pregnancy, and they're pick, 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 and then afterwards, and then it's the not for Simon, but yet they're doing it for all these other babies. They're feeding the other babies. Right. They're doing on the other babies and it was just again it goes back to that label and I really wondered why I was reading that book I mean it was very interesting and since I've seen the movie but it it's 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 genetic discrimination is what it is and that's you know, exactly right 
And so we just, you know, he's living, and uh, to us, we're saying, wait a minute, he's not incompatible with life. His life is God at work. And, you know, we were realizing, okay, we're advocating for our son, and God granted us Simon to take care of. And then we planned to revisit the heart surgery when he got bigger and stronger. What had happened is the cardiologist had it all lined up for us to be transferred over to Cardinal Glennon. A neonatologist came in and scared us again. You know, I mean, everything is so frightening. And and she's like, well, he has trisome 18. You know, if they intubate him, we don't know if we'll be able to extubate him. And and I said, well, you know, I'm not real familiar with that process. What what does it all mean? She described it as like this sword going down my son's throat. Well, I, 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 I was frightened. And she said, and then because of the trisome 18, and then I'm thinking, well, my goodness, we're going to lose him on the table. Okay, we'll wait till he gets bigger. But it was one of those things where, you know, we didn't know who to believe. You know, we we thought wow. that they had our best interest in mind. And even like with the nursing and the, the bottle feedings, we thought they were helping us. Oh, just a little bit, just a little bit. But how do we even know? And, you know, so we, we did. We ended up, you know, um, going on and, and, of course, you know, living in um, – the moment, and, and let's face it, we're all on borrowed time. None of us right. know. We don't have a guarantee for tomorrow, and that's why I'm looking at them going, wait a minute, well, we don't know when he's going to go, so, you know, so, oh, just enjoy him, just enjoy him, just this, just, oh, you know, you know, oh, you know, they're bringing in photographers and this and that, and, 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 and that's, all, that's all wonderful, my goodness, you know. Um, we even right. had a friend of ours who's a photographer come, and you definitely need those pictures, but, but they had us so fearful of everything. And, you know, we started realizing, you know what, his extra chromosome, <laughs> it makes him extra special extra amazing, extraordinary, and, and, you know, he just taught us. We were finding out he was teaching us so much. He was teaching us how to live in the moment. He was teaching us compassion. He's teaching us patience. And he's also teaching us that the measurement of life's value is in love. And it's nothing else. And, again, back to none of us have a guarantee. We are all on borrowed time. So right. use your given talent as a physician, do what you need to do for my son and leave the rest in God's hands. And again, you know, in this day and age, uh, you know, it's uh, too many. It's almost asking too much. Yes. It is. But now, I mean, well, I'm here, here, you know, exchanging, you know, I'm flabbergasted. We're all flabbergasted that, 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 that this is happening. But as you're sharing, this is the same story that I have heard many of my friends and other guests on our program tell about their experiences, that they, the extreme pressure to abort, and when they refuse to abort, the extreme pressure afterward to, like you said, expedite their child's demise. And no right. longer did they experience a lot of the friendly voices of the medical community. I mean, it's the same people turned around and began to... Um, be very stern with them, um, insisting that that what needs to be done is for their child to die faster. Oh, exactly, exactly. And, and I, I can't believe I do. I, you know, me getting over the, the just being flabbergasted at that. Now trying to say, is this now you having gone through this 
situation, is this what happens to other parents in a similar situation? It it happens to other parents, yes. And, um, you know, some of them, you know, that the now they have that blood test out there. Um, they just take the, um, it's maternal blood that they can detect mm-hmm. three of the trisomies, and um, 21, 18, and 13. Now, for some, and, you know, it depends on how they look at it. For some, you know, who are going to fight for their child, they, you know, they really research it. They they talk to survivors who are still living with trisomy. You know, they, they learn a little bit about the, you know, the medical, um, you know, complications that can occur. But there's no guarantee that your doctor or the attending physician is going to do what you want. Again, it's going to go back mm. to parents' wishes. And But here's what's scary is that they get this test because it's such an easy one to do. They just take the blood. Mm-hmm. And the results come, you know, so there's no amniocentesis like when, when they were pressuring us, you know, where I was afraid right, that that right. could cause a miscarriage. This, this is non-invasive. Don't worry, we take your blood. And then here they come back with that. I'll tell you what, that gives that physician the information he needs to not do a C-section. And I'll tell you what, our kids can struggle. If they have heart defects, you have to watch them on the monitor in labor and delivery. I'm in the hospital with Simon. Okay, now remember, I didn't have the diagnosis because we refused, and I'm going to use that word because that's what we did. We didn't deny, we refused. (laughs) And I'm in the hospital, and that's where I started thinking, wait a minute, they are starting, there's something not right here. And and, he, and we were talking to the labor and delivery nurse, and she's like, oh, don't worry. Simon doesn't have trisomy 18. She said he wouldn't even be on this heart monitor. I said, what? She mm-hmm. goes, oh, yeah, typically if we know the child has trisomy 18, we don't even have him on a heart monitor. Now, you know what that means? They don't know what is going on. Mm-hmm. And if that child has defects, they're not on a heart monitor, then you're not right. going to be able to get them out via C-section so they survive. Right. So these children right. do not survive because they're working so hard. And so right. it's, that, was, that was, oh, it was horrible. And, and so, you know, just by hearing that, my heart ached for those babies. You know, I remember in labor and delivery, I'm thinking, wait a minute, something's not right here. And I'm thinking, well, I'm glad Simon's on it, but wait a minute, that's not right. It just didn't sound right. But one of the things um, I can say is that, um, you know, our, our children, um, we're all, you know, I mean, they're, they're our children. Um, they're, they're God's children, and he is their creator. And, and, you know, families want these children. I mean, and even those that do terminate, I've had them read Simon's book. I had a woman in California who terminated at five months, I think four or five, I can't remember when. And uh, they tried saying, mm-hmm. oh, you were miscarrying. Well, she still questions that. Her child had mm-hmm. the diagnosis of trisomy 18. And she says she read Simon's book, and it strengthened her faith, but she said, you know what, now looking back, I've lived with guilt for all these years. She said, but they led me down this path. 
The medical community wow. led me down this path. And in a sense, trying to say, oh, well, you know, your child's going to die anyway, and it looks like you're in the process of miscarrying, so let's just, and you know, what happened next? And right. so, um, you know. No effort to save the life of no, the child at all. And that is they, just. They, they want their child, but I, I can tell you this, that um, the worst day, obviously, of our life was December 3rd, 2010, and um, his oxygen saturation levels, so the the number on the monitor, um, it began to fall, and we were told this is the end and nothing could be done. And as Simon drew his last breaths, I asked again what could be done and told nothing. And at 10.45 a.m., it was on a Friday, December 3rd, hmm. um, Tears obviously poured from our eyes and others as he left this world for his eternal home. But let me ask you this. Anyone who's listening or, you know, Letitia, let me ask you. If you saw someone struggling to breathe, I don't care where you're at, at a restaurant, out and about, whatever, would you do absolutely nothing? Not if I was able to. I mean, all of us. I mean, certainly you would think that a child... In a hospital, uh-huh. being the best place for somebody uh-huh. to provide necessary medical care. Yet, you know, if I was saw somebody in a hospital that couldn't breathe and there was nothing, you know, equipment, there was, I'm limited by my environment. Right, and if you don't know what they're not, right. you're going to get help. You're going to get a medical right. professional to help. You say you're in a right. restaurant, you see somebody struggling to breathe. You're going to call, you know, 911 or you're going to right. get somebody. Do whatever else I can. That's right. right. But now I mean, your most child people, is I mean, I don't care hospital. what faith they have. Most, I mean, you would hope, you know, if they see somebody struggling like that, they're going to call for help. And here nothing is done. I'm told nothing. I said, hey, can we put the CPAP back on him? Would that help him? You know, his, his saturation levels, you know, are falling. Could that help right. him? You know, hey, he was on the CPAP before the trisomy 18 diagnosis, you know, just like the rest of the medication and everything. Right. And um, right. I said, oh, no, that would be uncomfortable for him. I said, uncomfortable. And I'll remember this one nurse. She was not a special nurse, by the way. This one nurse said, you know, it's kind of like if a dog is hanging out the window, and you know, imagine that wind blowing. That wouldn't be comfortable. I'm thinking, but if that's going to help him breathe, and they're like, oh, no, it wouldn't help him anyway. I don't know if the CPAP would have helped him. But here I'm wow. asking, and asking for something more to do. And, you know, they had the little nasal cannula in there, but the oxygen mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't doing it. And so, um, you know, here no one's doing anything. And so imagine watching your child take their last breaths and his oxygen saturation levels plummet, okay? So watching that monitor, and they're going down to zero. And even the nurse didn't do anything. And then I find out later, you ready for this? Find out later that there was a DNR, a do not resuscitate, in this chart. Oh, my goodness. There's your answer. That's That's why they did nothing. We ne- but here's the other thing. We never signed a DNR. Never, right. ever, right. ever now, would we have DNR. Now, I'm not, going, a, I'm not a legal expert. How is this even legal? I know it. Well, that's a whole other thing. And then there's 
futility, there's a futility <laughs> law, and, yes. and that if you have a child that has this incompatible with life, any physician, any attending physician can stick it in your chart. Now, if you have a hospital that does not have a futility policy, which um, I'm going to uh, sing the praises for Cardinal Glennon, which I wish we would have ended up at, um, because mm-hmm. I've, I've asked and I've been there with other living um, children who have been born, and, and uh, they do not have a futility policy, which means right. the doctor and the parent and the wishes. There are not many hospitals out there like that. I can tell you that right now. But, again, you know, it comes down to what the physician thinks. So if the physician thinks, oh, this is futile, the child's going to die anyway, they can stick that in the chart. So here, going back to nobody doing anything, okay, nobody doing anything. But, you know, if this was, if Simon was a typical, healthy three-month-old, okay, in in a NICU, okay, or, you know, a three-month-old, he would be healthy. I mean, a typical three-month-old, without that extra chromosome, it would be an ER moment with people running down to save my child. But because he was a child with trisomy, nobody in the NICU did a thing. And then on top of that, we find out that the only food he was given, okay, so here we finally get him being fed, the only food he was being given in his nasogastric tube was comfort feeds. You know what that means? It means minimum amount of food. So if Simon stopped, if he wouldn't have just stopped breathing like he did and they did nothing, he would have ended up starving mm-hmm. to death. So you see. Goodness, I, I still, I just am not able to comprehend how the hospital is able to do this without, I know. Um, I mean, legally, I know. you're not able I know to it. do that. I mean, so that they can't if they can't take your child while they're in utero in fact i had a mom call me from minnesota god bless her and she was in tears and she found simon's website and she's like can you help me i'm carrying a child that has trisomy 22 okay so it wasn't even 18 but it was one of the rare you know you know anything's rare unless it's down syndrome basically which is trisomy 21 but she said i'm carrying a child with trisomy 22 and she said you know i keep telling them i'm not going to terminate you know what they finally told me they said your child is suffering in utero i said what no the child is not suffering in utero so fortunately she you know ended up I mean, she she has a whole different story, um, but you know, she advocated for her child, and you know, when when people find this this information out, it helps because then they're able to say, no, you're not going to do this. No, I know this, you know, and and be able to, you know, give the facts and 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 fight for the child and find out that you know you want to go to a hospital that doesn't have a futility policy and you want to find those trisomy friendly doctors because yes, they they are out there. But you don't know because here you're trusting, you know, I mean, we're, we're brought up to trust our physician right. that they're doing what's right. But it's like so many other children, you know, their diagnosis has a label on it. And just like Simon, he wasn't treated for his conditions. Medical treatment was withheld. And, you know, even that nurse Lola who, who got the feeds um, for him, um, she, she even quotes in his book, um, you know, th- that – the medical team needs to be more sensitive to parents and what they need. And she said it was a very tough atmosphere among nurses and physicians, and we were not on the same page. You know, she even 
asked for a care conference to the medical director once Simon was born and he had the diagnosis, and he goes, a care conference? Why would we do that? Basically a meeting where, you know, the parents were included and all the different specialties and nurses and doctors. He said, no. He goes, um, he goes we don't do care conferences for terminal kids. Nurse Lola looks at him and says, but they're the ones who need it most. Well, guess what? Now it all makes sense, and even she will say it. It wasn't just terminal kids. It was right. kids who have trisomy. So to make a long story short, you know, um, I know that, um, you know, the mission that Simon's entrusted me with, um, you know, I, I know, I knew his, his story had to be told, and, you know, now I see it, you know, um, it, you know, I'm realizing that this was the result of God's plan. And, um, you know, even on the front cover of Simon's book, there's a picture, and I didn't pick this on purpose. This was the publisher who picked it. And the picture of him, his his fingers are up, and, and he's, it says, I, he's saying, I love you in sign language. And oh, it was brought to Yeah, I see that. I'm looking at. I am looking at a picture of the front cover, and you are absolutely correct. <laughs> and I was told this by a mother. Uh, her name's Sarah Hayes. Her daughter, Megan, has uh, trisomy 18, and she's the one who's 32 years old. And I met her at a SOFT conference. SOFT stands for mm-hmm. Support Organization for Trisomy. It is an amazing organization. Um, there are those of us who, um, as we call our children now, um, you know, who have um, angels and those who are living still with trisomy. And we come together as, you know, a huge family. Our kids are all connected. And, you know, whether they're here, whether they're in heaven, it doesn't matter. I mean, we continue to celebrate their life, no matter how short or how long. Right. So one of the things that we can learn from this is that trisomy 18 is not fatal. It is not no, fatal. It, 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 it comes with complications. Do you remember back mm-hmm. in the 70s with the Down syndrome children? Do you remember right. they'd put them in institutions, they'd never live really very long, and mm-hmm. they didn't do any heart surgeries, they didn't do much. They basically, unfortunately, let them die. Well, trisomy 18, we're still in the infancy, and we're, we're behind them. We're trying to, you know, trying to get more. You know, for instance, they have floppy airways, the, tris- the mm-hmm. Down syndrome. Our kids with Edwards syndrome, they have floppy airways. Well, then what do you do? Right. Maybe you need a trach. These kids can make it, but you have to, um, you know, pay attention to their medical needs. Simon had reflux. Well, thank God one of his nurses said he needs Mylocon or Mylanta. You know, they should have done what they should have I know too much now, but what they should have done was a swallow study, and then he probably had um, obstructive airways, yet he was having apnea, but they never said what kind of apnea. Um, well, mm-hmm. you know, he, he was never even offered a trach. So they right. can live. Yes, it is It is a horrible diagnosis, but it's not a prognosis. So I want those who, um, you know, I, I want parents to feel empowered. I want them to have the facts. I want them to know that our kids can and do survive. And if they're given a chance, 
outcomes can change. You know, of course, right. you know, you you don't want your child to suffer. You don't, you know, I mean, so everybody's decision is going to be different. I mean, nobody wants to just sign their child up for heart surgery. Okay. However, oh, my goodness, you wouldn't believe the success, you know. And I'm looking at these kids now, and they're doing so well. You know, they say failure to thrive. They say our kids are incompatible with life and failure to thrive. Well, heck, yeah, if you can't breathe. Exactly. You know, if you are well, doing what you can to to ensure the demise of these children, of course they're not going to survive. Right. Um, if they have and, a broken kind heart. Of a if, self, if this is kind of for the medical doctors, this is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, the child has a fatal or a terminal condition, and so we're not going to do anything to save their lives, and thus, they die, and I don't understand that. I mean, how the logic plays out. The public really needs to know that their children. I mean, when you go to a hospital, you don't necessarily have ethical, strong ethical doctors, and and I hope that people are waking up to that fact. For those children that are very, very young, and have a condition, or those on the other end that are very old and have a condition. I mean, those DNRs can be slapped on anybody. Those DNRs can be slapped on anybody, and also the seating issue, like I was telling you, you know, um, my friend, uh, she, her, I don't know, I think it was uncle or I mean, he was older, he was elderly, went into the hospital with pneumonia, and then I don't know if that mm-hmm. cleared up or have you, but guess what? They convinced his wife to take away his feeds. They are dehydrating and starving even, you know, the elderly. This man did not have a lot of complications. So they're doing it in the NICU. They're basically euthanizing our children, and they're doing it Mm -hmm. at the very end of life with the elderly. No difference. In the state of Florida, this will floor you, um, in the state of Florida, they are – you know, not providing enough, um, you know, whether it's home health care or, or what have you. And, you know, insurance can only cover so much and this and that. But they are basically forcing parents to, to put their children with trisomy 18 infants in nursing homes. Infants are in nursing homes in Florida with My trisomy. Goodness. Yes. So, you know, I mean, it's, again, it goes back to that discrimination and, and you know, right. um, you know, it's, it's, so you're, it's the not for your child. And, 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 you know, just like I said, I want everyone who has to walk this road, you know, to feel empowered, but I also want them to feel blessed and have hope in your child. And, 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 and these, these kids are so special and I believe, I believe that they are pure souls and just, Oh, they're amazing. They're incredible. And, you know, we don't want to be robbed of our peace. The disconnect is our kids can and do survive if they're given a chance. And if the medical community would see the love and see that these kids are wanted, maybe we can start seeing some changes. But they still continue to take things in their own hands. And, you know, um, I I know that – yeah, go ahead. um, So you're – so the book, I am not a syndrome. My name is Simon. Um, what do you? What does the book? I mean, it chronicles your your journey and chronicles his his life. And but what is? What are you trying to do with this book? What do you, you want people to get out of this book? Well, if um, 
you know, my message in in the beginning, uh, when I go out, I do a lot of public speaking now, um, medical professionals and and uh, faith based communities, uh, and you know, it's it's the same message. Like I said in the beginning of of our interview uh, mm-hmm. today, that mm-hmm. all life has value and dignity. And you know, again, our kid, you know, regardless of the diagnosis or syndrome, um, you know, we all have value, and we fought so hard um, to show the value. And and that, you know, that is that's a message. But but the other thing is is that the audacity that the medical community can even just call our kids incompatible with life when they're right. living. So again, I want to empower parents as well, and I want I want people to know the truth, the truth that we didn't know. We were robbed of the joy during the pregnancy. We were robbed of the peace because they didn't tell us about these existing children. They never told us there's an organization called Soft, and mm. you know we were denied that. And so it's the truth. I want the truth to be out there. But if you look at the title, I am not a syndrome. My name is Simon. Uh, my little boy actually uh, named his book. It was supposed to be called Blanketed with Hope, but it's obviously changed, and now it's I'm Not a Syndrome. Stop looking at the syndrome. Look at the person. You know, just because you read a statistic that, oh, they're all going to die, um, that that's not true. Look, look at the individual. Our kids are absolutely amazing. Why did Simon only live 88 and a half days? I don't know. I'm actually going to the funeral tomorrow in Springfield, and she had trisomy 18, and the little girl only lived nine days. You know why? Why is uh, uh, this other? You know, Megan, who's 32 years old. How did she? I don't know. I do believe, of course, you know that there is a book of life, absolutely. But our kids need to be given a chance. And I'll tell you what: there are no regrets. Those parents that have brought their child to term, there are no regrets. And that that funeral that I'm I'm going to. Um, this little girl, oh my goodness, absolutely beautiful. Um, she, um, the, the actually, it was the father. He, he, um, when I went up to meet meet the little girl after she was born, he said, Cheryl, she wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you. So they uh, had contacted Soft, which in turn contacted me, and they fought for her and they got her here. And and you know, uh, obviously there were some complications along the way, but. But I can tell you this family did fight for her, and they don't regret it. He said, you know what, if we would have listened to that doctor, they would have terminated. He goes, not that we wanted to, but they kept telling us that she was going to die. Now, she right. didn't, did she? And even living nine no. days, do you call that incompatible with life? I, no. I certainly don't. And I don't understand the logic of saying if your child is going to die before birth, then then you should abort that child. So, I, I mean, that, I don't understand that by itself. <laughs> how can you how can you say, let's abort a child, let's terminate the pregnancy, um, if the child is expected not to live anyway? I, I don't understand why you want to terminate the child's life early. Why early? If the child exactly. is not going to live, why don't you just let the child die a natural death? 
Exactly. And well, that, they, and they use me, all these seductive language. Oh, oh, uh, yeah, we could go on, but <laughs> there's. But um, anyway, so um, right, I understand where you're going with that. I wanted to, when the time that we have left, um, just yes. tell us what you're what you're doing now and where you're going to speak next, and if you'd like to tell our audience uh, some more information to get in touch with you, find out more information about your book. That that would be great. You know, one of the things I, I am going to add, though, there are some um, OBGYNs out there. As soon as they get that diagnosis, they will induce moms between 32 and 34 weeks. And oh. let me tell you what happens. The babies sometimes don't make it, but they use the seductive right. language, oh, but we can put the child in your arms and you can hold your child. Basically, you know, they can die in your right. arms. But they use the other language, um, you know, here we've talked so much about termination, you know, the terminating the pregnancy. Um, the other term um, that some of these moms who are carrying um, children with trisomy here is, uh, you know, interrupt the pregnancy, you know, I, 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 as if that's a little bit uh, lighter. But um, as far as contacting me, yes, um, anyone who has any questions, I'd love to hear from you. Um, my website is simonismyname.com. So that is my name, dot com, and you can find information about Simon's book. Um, it's available at uh, um, most bookstores, you know, in the St. Louis area, um, in, in Catholic Christian bookstores, uh, but also Webster Groves Bookshop carries it too. But if you're out of town or if you like to order online, you can get it um, through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, just just go ahead. There's links, um, again, going back to the simonismyname.com. So that's information about the book. But there is so much more information I have on there. Different groups, again, about soft. Um, you can find that online um, on, on his site. And some of the other newspaper articles um, that we've had done. Um, you, you can find speaking engagements uh, that, that I have done and, and that, that I'm going to be doing, actually, uh, uh, this next Saturday, November 9th. Uh, Pam Victor, the president of Missouri Right to Life, had invited me to speak at their statewide meeting in Jeff City. So, if anyone's mm-hmm. close to Jeff City, um, I'll be I'll be out there and uh, I'll be talking about Simon's story and, of course, uh, increasing awareness of our of our children. So, um, there's so much. But if you want to get in contact with me, um, my you can just push. Click contact um, within the website, or it's Simon is my name at att.net is probably the best way to do it um, as well. Or just leave a comment on his website. Again, simonismyname.com. So I think that's about it. Great. Right. Um, I'm so grateful um, to have had the opportunity. And uh, again, you know, if if there's any questions that that you have, Leticia, I'd love to talk further. So. Oh, I would love to. I, I could I could probably think up of a hundred more questions, um, and all related to you know how we treat human beings in in these most vulnerable situations. I can't you know when you have a child that has a condition that requires more medical care, how we can talk ourselves or our medical community is being is talking itself into justifying and rationalizing with removing care instead of providing more. I mean, to me, that is just a, a, a flagrant um, rejection of everything that medicine stands for. <laughs> so I mean, mm-hmm. I could go, we could go on for a long time talking about the implications 
and the ramifications of all that. But I wanted to thank you so much for sharing just, you know, your slice and your experience of how this is being played out that so many more parents are experiencing. Like I'm saying, your experience is, is so powerful, but you are not alone. This is happening to other parents. It has happened to other guests of mine on this show. And and the suffering that the medical professionals have have heaped on these parents and the and the families that are involved is just not is it is not acceptable. In my in my book, it is not acceptable. They are exceeding the ethical bounds of their profession by making parents suffer like this, withdrawing care from their loved ones and their babies and their you know whoever it happens to, the patient happens to be. Um, and I just wanted to thank you again for sharing your story. I I encourage our audience to find out more. I mean, trisomy 18 is certainly the one that we don't hear much about. But you know, we do have um, Senator Rick Santorum, whose whose daughter exactly. has trisomy 18. Is, is that is that correct? I think that's correct. It is. Yeah, actually, I met right. um, Rick Santorum at um, the first soft conference I went to in Chicago in 2011 and uh, actually sat at the same table as him. And wow. it's amazing because his story is unique in itself, you know. Um, but, it's again, they, they discriminated against his daughter and trying to send right. him home without oxygen and all kinds of things. But, you know, again, um, you know, my message is clear. You know, Simon wasn't a syndrome. You know, God blessed us with a right. son. He's a right. son. He's our, and his name's Simon. But I encourage, um, you know, anyone who is expecting, um, you know, <laughs> Protect your child from the moment of conception and then continue to do so here on earth. I mean, we, again, it goes back to we're all on borrowed time. Who knows when, but, you know, you want your child to only know love. and, and, And our family's love does not count chromosomes and I'm sure that many of this listener these listeners um are the majority of them are probably pro life and I don't think that their love for their child would count chromosomes either, so Absolutely right. Um, thank you again. Um, I will do my best to try to um, make one of your talks, because I am so interested in just all the ramifications, like I said, all the ramifications and implications of your experience. And I will tr- do my best to try to catch up with you some other time here in St. Louis, Cheryl. But thank you so, so much for for everything that you've said. And I, I just wanted to... Um, I just want to encourage our audience to pick up more information. So um, I'm going to let you go because <laughs> I, have to, okay. I have to end and the show very soon. But thank you again. Oh, thank you so much. And we'll catch up later. Okay. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Cheryl Crozier. That's Cheryl Crozier and her the name of her, the title of the book that she had written about her son is called I Am Not a Syndrome. My name is Simon. And I encourage everybody to look into this story this is a powerful powerful story of of just i think for me is just the abuses of the medical community when it comes to people they don't value anymore and it used to be i think that children who had who had more to gain from medical intervention would receive it but now we are seeing a huge pullback and we as a pro-life community need to be very very aware of that and i hope that the rest of the country would become more aware that 
there are times, and these are one of these times that the medical community can, can sometimes they're not your friend. And you need to know that, and you need to advocate for your loved one or yourself if you become, God forbid, fall under that category where they just don't value your life anymore. And this is a huge ethics violation. It is a moral problem in our ethics communities. And it it stems from things that I have said before on the show, that it comes from a worldview that has nothing to do with being faithful to do no harm being or being faithful to exercise medicine to heal and to preserve life. In fact, you know, the, the, the medical, I'm sorry, medical ethics boards are formed, first of all, to cut costs, and second of all, to determine who should live and who should die. And that is not the decision that any human can make on behalf of another who is not related to them. It's not something anyone can decide over a boardroom, in a boardroom behind tables and chairs. And so in the time that we have left, um, I was going to talk about, first of all, I was going to talk about something that is good news for uh, a lot of our, our states. In the state of Texas, the D.C. Court of Appeals has ruled that their their law, the, the, I'm sorry, let me get my head back together. I was talking about something else and changing subjects. They have upheld the Texas law that was previously declared unconstitutional that strictly has put restrictions on abortion after 20 weeks. So praise God for that, that the law is upheld. We pray that, I hope, that legislators really push it to the next level. I mean, I'm talking about let's get this, the wheels going and let's not stop. I mean, Wendy Davis can go eat her heart out. She has lost she has this battle both intellectually and politically. So, you know, as far as that is concerned, I am I'm praising God for the success there. And another piece of good news, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled against the HHS mandate for business owners who have conscience, a conscience uh, against providing contraception in their health insurance. So two pieces of good news. And then the very final thing that I wanted to show, we haven't done this in a while, but it is the stupidest thing ever. It is the stupidest thing ever. And a, a teenage student went to school on Halloween Day, which was yesterday, his costume was Jesus Christ. And you're like, okay, all right. He was thrown out of school for dressing up as and, and as black Jesus Christ. Now, the thing is, the student himself was a black student. So I don't know what the big deal is that, you know, he's a black Jesus. Um, you can be black Jesus. If, you can't, if you're black, you want to be Jesus? You can be Jesus. But this poor child, this poor teenager, his name was Marshawn Sanders. I don't want to say Martian. Marshawn Sanders. Uh, in, um, this is say where his, oh, in Chicago. <laughs> Chicago High School. He was basically kicked out of school for that day for wearing a costume about Jesus. 
a, a Jesus costume. He dressed up like Jesus. And let me tell you the hypocrisy of that. If he had dressed up as the, the prophet of Islam, he would have been charged with a hate crime because the student, uh, the, the body, uh, I'm sorry, the administration had thrown him out of school that day because they did not want him, quote, unquote, promoting, promoting religion. <clears throat> Be it ever true that if he had dressed up as a member of a different religion, um, he, would have been he would have not only been thrown out, he would have been charged with a hate crime. So is he, did he get off easy? No. What I'm saying is school has gone completely insane. There's nothing wrong with dressing up as Jesus. <laughs> if that was his costume and he was not meaning to offend anybody, then nobody should take offense. And he certainly wasn't promoting religion. So that is the stupidest thing ever. All right. Thank you, everybody. We are going to end the show now, finally. Um, and so you don't have to listen to me talk anymore. We'll see you next week. We have another wonderful, wonderful broadcast coming up next week. Please come back and listen to more wonderful insights and a wonderful guest. And hopefully you'll learn something. Good night. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family.
BGW Group. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.